2: Hello and a very warm welcome to Dr. Giles Yo, Choose the Fat. By day, I spend my time at the University of Cambridge trying to solve genetic mysteries like why some people prefer fatty food while others prefer sweet. And by night, you can often find me tucking into teriyaki grilled salmon with rice and a killer sauce. Basically, one way or another, I'm thinking about food 24-7. But I think the way we think about food needs to change. There are a lot of quick and easy numbers we like to use – calories on a crisp packet, kilograms on a scale, BMI at the doctor's surgery – but they just don't do justice to how diverse and clever our individual bodies are. We all respond to food differently, we tolerate lactose to different extents, and our genetic makeup even means we'll be more or less susceptible to certain diseases than our friends. The relationship between certain foods, our bodies, and disease is what I want to get into today with Dr. Rupi Ojla.
3: Within Ayurveda, the gut is central to everything. And it seems that as this plays out, that with more research looking at the microbiota, the population of microbes that live in and around our body, largely in our gut it seems that there's a lot of truths coming out and the need for pickles and fermented foods and and something that exists in every single culture it seems a bit strange that we've got all these different things and it's been promoted
2: before and we've kind of lost our way and now we're coming
3: back to ah maybe there is something in there
2: rupee is a medical doctor specializing in general practice although he does some emergency medicine too as well as running his educational platform the doctor's kitchen What I'm particularly interested in is the fact that through his online presence, cookbooks, and podcasts, he shares recipes with ingredients that celebrate cultural diversity, as well as putting a spotlight on the clinical research behind those ingredients. I'm East Asian and Rupi is South Asian, so we both have a lot to talk about when it comes to our foodie heritages. Of course, though, I had to start by asking the obvious question. How the doctor's kitchen began? The Doctor's Kitchen was
3: started in 2015 as a passion project. It's still very much as a passion project for minus Giles. Really as a tool to educate people about how they can cook their way to health and utilize ingredients. And I talk about the clinical research behind them as a method of encouraging and motivating people to look at their diets in a, in a more holistic and, and positive manner. But the start of my story really is back 12 years ago when I first became a doctor in 2009 and I was suffering from a heart condition called atrial fibrillation, which... For the listeners is a condition where your heart beats irregularly, and in my case, very fast at 200 beats per minute. And I was looking at a choice between medications that I was on for about a year or so, and an ablation, which is where you put a guideline to the heart and you burn an area around the pulmonary vein to stop these misfiring cells. And um, I was 100% gonna have this ablation. It was potentially curative. I was a very good candidate for it. And it was my mum, who is not a trained medical professional who suggested that I should really look at my diet and lifestyle.
2: Is she a medical professional at all, or is she just a mum? She's just a mum. No, not just, just a mum. That's
3: a terrible thing to say. She, she, she was, oh, she's, she's an Indian mum, and, so, so, and I'm sure it's the same with, the, with different cultures as well. well. Chinese mums. Yeah. Same mums. Exactly. Yep. But, you know, matriarch, runs the household, and more, you know, um, was pivotal in my decision to go into medicine. But she was like, you really need to think about diet and lifestyle before you entertain more drastic things. And as a conventionally trained medic, I thought she was bonkers. You know, was, I was very skeptical about this whole nutrition thing and lifestyle and never taught that in medical school. Why on earth would that have any effect? And so honestly, Giles, to appease her, I decided to look at my diet, which was quote unquote normal, you know, cereal in the morning, sandwich from the hostel canteen, pasta for dinner, I was doing night shifts, so you know, I certainly wasn't getting to bed on time. I was stressed because it was three months into a new job as mm. a junior doctor. I had a whole bunch of different things that were probably impacting me and my stress levels in general that I tried to rectify over the course of about a year and a half. And my experience, my anecdotal experience, I have to uh, emphasize that, was my atrial fibrillation episodes that were lasting between 24 and 36 hours, happening two to three times per week went down to zero after i started instigating all these different lifestyle changes and so really that was the impetus for me to answer two questions Mm. one how on earth is this possible that doesn't make any sense whatsoever and two why were not we taught this kind of stuff at medical school and that really was was the impetus for me to have more open honest conversations with patients do a bit more research and the doctor's kitchen was sort of the output because As you can imagine, getting a reputation as a general practitioner, as being the doctor that will talk to them about recipes... And diet, and you know what they can eat as well as what we can prescribe. I became quite popular, and my clinics would become longer and longer and longer, and so I had to find a more efficient another way, way
2: to get the information out. Exactly. I mean, clearly, you were a dab hand in the kitchen beforehand. I mean, clearly you're not <laughs> going to be the doctor's kitchen if you, you, you know, <laughs> open a tin of beans. So clearly you knew how to you knew how to cook. Yeah, and again that comes down to my mum. So my mom, my mum's
3: an incredible cook. Um, throughout my childhood, you know, I'm Indian, Punjabi, so we obviously had fantastic punjabi food which Mm. is pratas and sort of dal which is like lentil-based foods and and you know delicious different iterations of those but also my mum loved italian food american food we'd do a bit of barbecue we'd do british and european cuisine and so before i went to medical school she said look you really need you need to know how to cook uh, because you're going to be on your own now so she taught me two dishes One was a lemongrass Thai curry, delicious, went into my first book. And the second was, um, I think it was like a steak sandwich or something, something very simple. I literally went to med school and everyone thought I was this incredible cook because I could make this Thai lemongrass curry with galangal and, you know, holy basil and all these different ingredients. And so really to keep up the pretense, I started learning a few more recipes. And uh, that was the start of me uh, really getting interested in, in food and, and the deliciousness
2: and, and experimenting with different cultures. No, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. So when I was an undergrad... So, okay, I did not get, my mom was also a wonderful cook and I, as it turns out, now can also cook. But actually, I didn't get no crash course from my mom before I went to university. <laughs> I don't know why. But then what happened was uh, in my second year, I, I did my university at the University of California um, in mm. Berkeley. And um, and I was looking for a summer job. Okay, so I ended up uh, going to work at the in the canteen. First of all, as a the dishwasher, then as the guy that collected the cash. Um, and then one day, they, they needed some guy to crack eggs. It's fine, I can crack eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 after a year, year and a half, I found myself becoming a short order cook. I don't know how that happened, you know, flipping the burgers and stuff like that. And then I segued into <laughs> catering. So suddenly, at the end of, of, of three years working from, from from this place, I actually had a job offer. I I ended up doing my PhD, but at the end of my undergrad, I actually had a job offer to join this catering company. Um, um, to actually no to, to, as a as a cook. Oh my god! And and so then, since then, I then had this. Real interest. So, so this was a completely different kind. This was not Cordon Bleu Please let me just point this <laughs> out. Okay. <laughs> But 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 it got me really interested thinking about cooking, um, I'm thinking about feeding people. And so I completely dig what you're saying. I am all over um, your story. This is, this is a good story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I, I was really
3: lucky in that I, I used to live with a bunch of medics. Uh, it wasn't just medics. It was some people doing physics. And uh, it was at science university I went to. It was Imperial College. So loads mm. of different sort of uh, science, science undergrad. And they all love food. And so we would experiment with different spices. We had a pestle and mortar. I mean, what university students do you know that own a pestle and mortar to make their own spice blends? I mean, it was pretty that's, cool. That's, like, very, that's very middle class, very, yeah. very, very middle class of you. <laughs> <laughs> so we we loved it, you know. We would do barbecues and we would do loads of different types of stews. And I mean, I'm I'm addicted to watching Saturday Kitchen. It's my favorite show of all time. I love Saturday Kitchen. So we would watch that and like Hungover mornings and Saturdays. And you know, probably shouldn't talk about that. But you know, you know, the the, the, the normal sort of medical school uh, environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was yeah, no, it was great. And I think that's that that's why I think food for me is is more than just the health benefits of food and to reduce it to just you know fuel or calories or you know just the impact on uh, inflammation signaling pathways it negates the wider aspect of food it's how you eat it who you eat it with and the enjoyment of different i mean it's literally how we celebrate other people's cultures it's through the shared
2: enjoyment of different cuisines and i think it's really really important to to remember that let me ask you a question the term food is medicine because mm. right, I've, I've certainly heard, I don't know if I've heard you use it, but it's certainly a, a term that is out there. And I wanted to know your take on the term food is medicine. I'll, I'll give you mine first and then mm. we can get, this, this is not going to be a slanging match. I just was curious because um, now clearly I understand diet is important. I understand that the vast majority of non-communicable diseases, we are in the middle of a communicable disease pandemic, obviously. But the vast majority of non-communicable diseases is diet related understood so we have to fix our diet somehow mm. but my concern with the use of the term food is medicine is not so that people improve their diet there are people out there who say "Ooh, ooh! um since food is medicine i'm gonna have turmeric or ginger instead of my chemo and so i'll come off my chemo or mm. i'll come off some other medicine that actually works but use food solely in order to try and cure something so this is my issue with the term mm. food is medicine and i was just curious about your take
3: Yeah, no, it's a very, very important discussion to have because I think within any terminology, there is nuance to how we describe things and what we describe things for. So I remember writing in my first book, a whole chapter on why food is not a pill Ah. and we shouldn't use it as such Mm -hmm. because the definition of medicine in, in general terms is the use of substances and interventions to prevent as well as treat ear health. So when we practice medicine, we use a suite of different tools, like fixing a bone, we use implements. When we treat infections, we use pharmaceuticals. When we prescribe behavior change or encourage talking therapies, improving diet, suggesting exercise, these are all within the realm of practicing medicine. That's what I do as a general practitioner on a daily basis. And yes, in the context of an epidemic of non-communicable disease, IHD or cerebrovascular disease, dementia, call it what you will, it's very important that people understand the impact of diet. And I think where there is an issue, and I, I totally agree, is where people take the term food as medicine too literally to the point where they will negate all the other tools that we have at our disposal as practicing medical doctors. And I remember in my foundation year two i had a patient who was on dialysis who started neglecting the need for all of her medications on the basis that she had been told by another doctor quote unquote i don't know whether it was a naturopath or whatever we we didn't really get to the bottom of it but someone had told them that they could cure themselves using supplements and, and food and all the rest of it alone so i totally understand the dangers of people taking things too far but the term food as medicine or food and medicine or food with medicine you know I think it refers to the wider context of how we need to use nutrition as an additional tool in our suite of of interventions that we have as practicing doctors and even in America you know the um, NIH um, a, a big organization there that funds research have funded on the back of a pilot study a food as medicine group and they're looking at- uh, med- did they actually call that? They called it the food as med- yeah, yeah. medicine? Yeah, food as medicine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So National okay. Institutes of, of Health in America, mm-hmm. they did a pilot study where they actually prescribed medical meals for a number of patients post-hospital admission. They found out that they reduced the recurrence of them coming into hospital. And on the back of this pilot study, they've been awarded $3 million. I think it's, it's very recently, so you can look it up. And they're going to be piloting whether prescribed medical meals that are carbohydrate-controlled, and and have adequate amounts of fiber and et cetera, all the different macro and micronutrient uh, ratios can have a demonstrable impact on disease progression. We know that that's that's going to be beneficial in a number of different ways if you just look at the long-term studies. But it's quite interesting that it's becoming a lot more popular where there is an abundance of non-communicable diseases such that they have groups like the food as medicine group but i I, I agree with you i think we definitely need to be careful um, and we need to be very strict with how we describe and talk about food for people taking it the wrong way and i think you know this space is something that medics and people from a real research standpoint need to own rather than allow it to be taken over to be hijacked to be hijacked and and exactly
2: Luxury quality within reach. Go to Quince slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince slash style. Um you, you mentioned your mom quite early on in the um and she, the fact that she was an Indian aunt, Indian auntie. Your mom yeah. <laughs> Indian auntie. But so how has your how has your Indian heritage, um, your South Asian heritage played a role? in your outlook of, of health? It's, it's played a massive role, if I'm honest. So my
3: mom actually got ill when I was uh, 11 or 12. She used to suffer from idiopathic anaphylaxis, so where you have a, a severe form of allergy where your blood pressure drops and you pass out uh, some, sometimes and you can get swelling of your, of your airways and it requires an adrenaline shot. And she had a number of instances that weren't recognised as to what the trigger was. And it was that um, that experience that she was going through that that drew me towards medicine in the first place. That certainly was the, the sort of spark in my head. But then I also had like quite uh, honest discussions with my parents about how health and well-being was sort of taught to them when they were growing up. And it was instilled with a lot of Ayurvedic principles, which is ancient Indian medicine, and it's very similar to lifestyle medicine it's it's waking up according to the normal circadian rhythm of cells so i getting up and and getting that sunlight in the morning and going to sleep at a reasonable hour it's moving your body it's performing things like yoga which is general exercise as well as looking at the breath and, and being conscious of the breath it's practicing stillness as well as being mindful of what you eat as well all the core tenets of what we now describe uh quite playfully is, is lifestyle medicine and, and that was instilled in me at a very young age. But I never really came to appreciate it as much. As until you become a doctor? Until I, well, until I got ill. Until I got ill. Ah, yeah. Until I got ah, Ill, Ill myself. Okay. And I don't think, had I not had that anecdotal experience myself, would I have really entertained it until later on? and i became a gp and i became interested in this because lifestyle medicine social prescribing they're all hot buzzwords now in in the in the curricula amongst general practitioners because it's become a lot more acceptable to to talk about these things back when i became a junior when i first qualified in 2009 these weren't things that were in the air they they, they we weren't using this sort of terminology it's fairly new but my my parents and my parents parents had been sort of talking about these kind of ways of living for for you know hundreds of years if not millennia so you know, I, I kind of had this but i never really appreciated just how lucky i was to be instilled in this sort of way of living from from a young age i mean turmeric uh, lattes which are very fashionable now i remember being very fashionable i remember being force fed that when i was a kid i used to hate it It was a turmeric and a like warm milk it tasted disgusting <laughs> and now you pay like five pounds for that in a fancy coffee shop We're Like, what are you, you do, do.
2: <laughs> but it, it, it's funny this ayurvedic is i can't pronounce it i think that's that's how, how you ayurvedic pronounce it yeah, ayurvedic yeah. Um, principles sound very similar as well to so i'm ethnically i'm chinese uh, mm. I'm, I'm ethnically as you know like for example we have for whatever reason our Entire food groups are split into heating or cooling foods, and nothing to do with temperature. Mm. It has to do with your inner you, your chi, the 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 the, the full the full thing, and it depends what situation you're in. Yeah, do you have to have heating foods or cooling foods, as 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 they said? And what was always fascinating to me. So my dad um, is also a medic. Well, he's a retired medic now, endocrinologist, and I noted even as a, as, a, as a little little child, you know, these arguments, because he, he was definitely a very, a by-the-book contemporary medicine, for lack of a better term, person. You know, he did, he did actually his, his registrar training here in, in, in King's College in London. Then he moved back to Singapore. But having arguments with either his mother or my grandma or his mother-in-law about various things. Don't talk nonsense, he would, he, he would say. <laughs> and, and I remember, uh, once again, when I was uh, quite young, where his university at the time he was at the National University Hospital in Singapore, right, and um, and they sent him to China with a team. They almost sent a working group to China to look at the way that Chinese hospitals were incorporating more holistic medicine, but, but contemporary type medicine versus traditional medicine, and how the Chinese hospitals were trying to integrate it into the, in, in, into their in, into their systems. And I remember he brought. You're gonna ask me what the findings were. I was ten, I don't know. But I remembered <laughs> <laughs> I remembered he went to China to do it. And so at the time, you know, I think people were already beginning to think that look, you know, there clearly is something in mm. some of these um herbs and roots and berries and and, and, and whatever you, you're eating. You know, for there to be so how do we actually integrate it into the whole? Because it's medicine, it either works or it doesn't work. Yeah. It's no magic. And and it could be old school and works, it could be new school and doesn't work.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think a lot more people are getting interested in this subject matter around what truths can we extract from the practices of ancient medicine. And I think the general ones are moving more, exercising and trying to... Maximize your sleep potential as much as possible. These are things that have always been rooted in those. But the more specific things, like okay, heating and cooling foods, which is quite similar in Ayurvedic uh, oh, sort of okay. tradition as well. Yeah. So my my mum's always like, you run quite hot, so you don't want to eat ginger. And I I, <laughs> I love ginger. I you know I put ginger in the curries and all the rest of it. She's like, you shouldn't have too much ginger. I'm like, okay, fine, fine. You know. But there, there, whether there is some truth in this, it's very hard to extract. I mean, we don't really have the nutritional science to to stand by any of these sort of claims at this point but you know look at probiotics or gut health for example within ayurveda i can't speak for ancient chinese medicine but within ayurveda the gut is central to everything and it seems that as this plays out that with more research looking at the microbiota the population of microbes that live in and around our body largely in our gut it seems that there's a lot of truths coming out and the need for pickles and fermented foods and and Every, something that exists in every single culture, whether you're looking at um, British cuisine and, and tartare, which is traditionally made with ferments, or yep. you're looking at kefir from the Middle Eastern areas, or you're looking at, you know, uh, kimchi, obviously, from, from Korea and, and the surrounding areas. It, it seems a bit strange that we're, we've got all these different things and it's been promoted before and we've kind of lost our way. And now we're coming back to, ah, oh, maybe there
2: is Do something in there. Trying to understand more about it. Yeah, That's right. Exactly. So the other interesting thing is the both. I I look. I look on the Zoom screen that we we clearly are two ethnic. Well, we're ethnic minorities in this country. We're not ethnic minorities in the the respective places we're coming from, but in this this country. But what is interesting, and what I do know, is that South Asian people, such as your peeps, and East Asian people, such as folks that look like me, and now we're talking about diabetes here. Mm. uh, We have an increased risk of diabetes without having to get. Too large, so so you know. Yes. Famously, oh, you 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 know, obesity is linked to type two diabetes, which is which is true. But South Asian and East Asian people just we don't have to get that much larger than we are now to yeah. suddenly tilt into in, in, into this risk. Hey, what are your thoughts about the underlying biology for that? Mm. And I'm just wondering how different cultures consider medicine when they're actually therefore thinking about their susceptibility to different diseases it's a, it's a very good point and I think
3: one bugbear I have with uh, research with, which I think is getting better is that traditionally we look at both nutrition and pharmaceutical studies looking at a largely Caucasian population yes. and there is a lack of diversity in what we see so it's very hard as a practitioner looking at the person in front of you to suggest something based on the research when there isn't as much as there should be to guide us. Uh, I think we're getting better at that. But you're right, you know, five times uh, more likely to develop type 2 diabetes are Pakistani women. It's a similar amount for Indian women. We know that when uh, the I mean, Indians and, and Pakistanis and Bengalis come to the UK or Canada or United States and they, they acclimatize by eating a Western Diet, we know that they have a higher propensity for things like type 2 diabetes independent of their BMI. And so, I mean, we we call it TOFI, to thin on the outside, fat on the inside, because we preferentially put on fat and that metabolically active sort of fat, which is the worst type of fat, around your visceral organs. So, you know, around your liver and your pancreas. Whether it's because of the rapid shift in what we're used to in terms of migration, whether it's because we have genes that make us uniquely susceptible to these issues. I'm sure that's something you can speak on a bit more than me. Is it the rapid uh, change in activity that we, we adopt a sedentary lifestyle? Is it pollution? You know, pollution, we're learning a bit more about how pollution can impact insulin sensitivity there's a whole bunch of reasons as to why um, people from ethnic minorities can have worse outcomes and are more likely to have things like metabolic disease and that manifests itself in type 2 diabetes compared to their caucasian counterparts and and also uh, on that note because this is something where uniquely diet has a very very important role because we're learning a bit more now about how it can be used not just as something to prevent the risk of but also used in
2: to reverse in treatment to, to, to reverse yes. exactly yes exactly yeah so i can touch on just the genetics you asked about the genetics about mm. it so i just I, I can share once again this is my, my uh, area of expertise so i can speak to that bit and this is work actually that's been done in cambridge not by or my colleagues about this whole concept of safe fat carrying capacity so people misunderstand what happens when you gain weight or lose weight they think you gain fat cells and lose fat cells. Mm. This is not true. So your fat cells are like balloons, they get bigger and they get smaller. Okay. And the safest place to store fat is clearly within your fat. And it's only when fat goes into your muscles, your liver, then you get all kinds of all kinds of, of, of problems. But now we're beginning to realize that everyone's fat, well, two things. A, you store fat in different places, in your mm-hmm. viscera versus your bum versus underneath your arms. Um, but everyone's, as it turns out, fat can also expand the differing amounts. And so... We we meaning South and East Asians, our fat probably uh um doesn't expand that much before it's full but before there's no room at the end and 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 the fat goes elsewhere without you being actually needing to gain that much that that much weight mm
3: yeah exactly, and it's that metabolically active fat that raises yeah. inflammation. Um, and you know i i see obesity and it isn't very fashionable to talk about obesity these days i think we, you know we have to obviously be mindful of fat shaming and uh, make sure that people understand that obesity isn't a choice it's something that you know is uniquely a result of our environment but obesity is really a symptom of metabolic issues that are occurring inside so the the reason why your liver packages Those carbohydrates and puts them into fat and and stores it either in your liver or your subcutaneous tissue or wherever around your body. It's because it's doing its job of making sure that it's moving that sugar from your blood and and putting it places where it can store. So it's not you know that your 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 body is out of control or it's not like it's your fault. It's it's your unique response to the environment. And unfortunately, we have an environment that is littered with high-fat, high-sugar foods. And we, we need to you know change the actual environment and how we deal with what people are eating before we can actually get to the, the issue of you know trying to help them with medications that there is a there's a deeper root cause to the issue
2: so let me in, let me interject here. This may very well be a co bug bear between the two of us I'm not sure. Mm. but BMI. OK, yeah. so, so it's just numbers, this number, this is magic number. Uh, people says BMI and everyone can quote the numbers, 20, 25, 30, whatever it is. Um, actually, there was a cab. I, I, w- <laughs> I came back. Uh, this is, this is just one of these things. I, I, a cab driver took me home one day from, a, from, from some dinner I was at when we could go to dinner. And he asked me what I did. I, I was a little bit drunk, so I made the mistake of telling him what I did. So he asked me all kinds of questions. It's fine. I'm happy to answer. Then he asked me what his BMI was. So I said, well, tell me your, 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 your weight. Tell me your height. And I calculated it for him. I think it was 29 or 28, okay? So he says, oh, is that bad? I said, well, look, I explained to him. He says, well, how much do I, wait, do I need to lose, okay, in order to get to 25? So, t- 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 <laughs> so I told him, I told him a number. He got me to my house. And, um, and I says, well, how much do I owe you? He says, doctor, you've saved my life. This taxi ride is free. Oh, wow. I'm going, really? <laughs> so 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 anyway, uh, but, but, so, but on a serious, that was a true story, by the way. But on a yeah, serious yeah. note, your take on BMI and its utility and its use,
3: Yeah so again this is uh, you're right it's a shared bugbear. Um, I think BMI has some use at a population level when we do research and we try and get a guide as to what issues the population might be suffering. So we just talked about obesity as a symptom of the issue and that gives us uh, some idea of how bad metabolic disease might be before we actually diagnose something like type 2 diabetes that it's fantastically late to diagnose as well because we rely on parameters like hba1c uh, which only go up right at the very end where your insulin stores are are, are packed up and and you've you've lost sensitivity to to the hormone Um, on an individual level do i think it has use probably not Um, i use you know waist circumference uh that the the gold standard would be looking at uh, dexa and actually looking at body composition i think we should really be looking at screening measures to see how effective it would be to scale that more robust measure of body composition to guide what we tell and what we teach patients to do but i don't think I i mean there's so many inaccuracies with the calculation of bmi that you could be inadvertently telling someone to lose weight when actually they are metabolically very healthy. Uh, and actually, they don't need to think about losing weight. And I think it's, it's, it's quite a, a naive and blunt tool
2: to use. It is, isn't it? Because I think then people you use it as a number to get to, I, I guess, it's p- people lose weight for many different reasons. Mm. Okay, I'd like to think that people need to lose weight, for, by they need to think about their health rather than necessarily their weight. And they, yeah. they need to lose as much weight as they need to get healthy. That, I think that that is probably a really important message.
3: Yeah, I, I think arbitrarily giving people this number to achieve negates the whole purpose of why we were thinking about BMI in the first place, because ultimately we don't want to hit numbers. We don't want to restrict everyone to 2000 calories every single day and, you know, a certain uh, measurement on a scale. We, we want people to think about healthy habits. And you lose the bigger picture when you just focus on the numbers, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure that taxi driver would do things to try and achieve that number that might be quite healthy. So reduce the number of snacks he has or go for a walk more often and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes it can be at the detriment of health. Some people want to chase a number just because they've been told it's the thing to do. And there are very unhealthy ways to chase that
2: number as well. They're very unhappy, unhealthy ways to lose weight. And so and so you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There is one thing left in diabetes I wanted to to, to ask you about. And this has to do with the direct study. So this is the study by by Prof Taylor up in up in Newcastle. Yes. Now this is not a diet per se, and I think it is quite severe. But this is the study up in Newcastle in which they took folks with type two diabetes, okay, and put them on a what they call a VLCD, which is a very low calorie diet. It was a shake, uh, mm. you know, nutritionally complete shake. I think it was 800 calories a day, and they did it for X. And and you know, someone came and gave them the drink and they drank it. And what? The key things were clearly they lost weight. This is unsurprising because, because they're only 800 calories a day. But what was amazing was that, I wouldn't say 100%, but a, a high percentage of them had their diabetes go into, in, 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 into remission. So my take on this study, aside from the fact that you're not going to survive on shakes the entire time, uh, my take on it was that because these shakes were, in effect, nutritionally balanced, they had carbs, mm. they had protein, they had all the, the, the full whack, that what it shows is that actually, if you lose the weight, it's not because I'm giving up carbs. It's not because I'm 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 giving up fat. The critical thing is to lose the weight properly. Yeah. And then when you when that happens, you can actually you can actually put your diabetes into remission.
3: Yeah, I think that study was absolutely fascinating and really really exciting because a, it showed a lot of naysayers that it is possible. Um, with diet, yes, it was a very extreme diet. and I don't think it's you know for everyone. It's but a proof of principle. Exactly, it's a proof of principle, and it gives people a choice because I know many patients that wouldn't want to do something as extreme as that, and they probably would lack the motivation or the uh, the know-how as to you know manage on such little calories every single day whilst performing their childcare duties or work or whatever it might be, you know, it's, 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 quite, it's a very, very hard diet to do, but it gives people a choice and it, and it's a very comparable choice as well to the more extreme measures of bariatric surgery that we put further down the line, you know, after all the different dietary interventions that we have. So I think it was fantastic for that. The longer term follow-up actually showed people managed to get rid of lots of weight, but then were trending upwards as well. For those who actually managed to keep on it beyond three months, I think it was 12 months. And then uh, I believe there's a two years uh, follow-up as well. Um, so th- that was a little bit concerning because it kind of follows the same trajectory as a lot of diets that are short term in that people will go on a diet, they'll they'll lose loads of weight, they'll try and keep motivated, but then the weight kind of creeps up after a long time because you have a number of different physiological mechanisms that drive people to put the weight back on as they've had such a drastic weight loss. That was the one worrying thing I, I, I took from it. The other thing is that there are many ways in which people can improve insulin sensitivity, which will improve their metabolic health. And lose weight as well if the, if losing weight is one of the things that they need to do. Mm. And, you know, it can be from a selection of different diets, whether it be Mediterranean, whether it be low-carb, dare I say, whether it be low-calorie and, and, and healthy balance. Whatever suits you is the Whatever line. suits you, exactly. And I think yeah. one of the best studies that should probably be repeated on a much larger cohort was the A to Z study by Prof Gardner, because what they showed is that they, they got a group of people, they said you can go on this diet, this diet, this diet, this diet. They chose whatever diet they wanted, they followed them up for 12 months, and the the kicker was they all lost weight. And the the, 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 the determining factor as to whether they lost weight or not was A, if they kept to that diet yep. rather than the diet itself. Yep. So it shows you it's
2: more about what suits the person rather than which diet is the best. Exactly. So, so look, can I just ask you, how have you eaten and cooked through lockdown? Have you eaten and cooked better, worse, the same? How, how have you done it? That's a really good question. So, I mean, obviously
3: um, throughout the lockdown, I've been working in A&E and so and my, my shifts went up, if anything. So I was working more full-time. I usually work part-time. And so my, my, my food really took uh, a bit of a hammering in terms of the quality and what I was craving. So I was, I was definitely eating a lot more comfort food. We were definitely eating more takeaways than we usually do. And quite frankly, we were also drinking a bit more as well. So I would, I would enjoy a glass of wine or two every other night which where usually I probably have one glass of wine a week so those are the the things that really did and and it showed as well I put on weight I put I put on about five kilograms uh, over the last 12 months and I don't usually weigh myself I just stepped on the scales at work and I realized I put on 5kg and I feel it as well. So I'm actually on a bit of a regime at the moment, nothing drastic, but one where I'm just, you know, reducing the takeaways, eating how I usually eat anyway, how I promote people should be eating a lot more holistically, slower, a lot more plants and exercising a little bit more as well. But yeah, it, it definitely did change a lot during lockdown.
2: Dr. Rupi, thank you for chewing the fat with me.
3: My pleasure. My pleasure, Giles.
2: There's still plenty more food for thought coming up on this series, so if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this right now. And if in the meantime, you want to learn more about the idea that there can be health at many sizes, but that not everyone can be healthy at any size, I go into more detail in my book, Why Calories Don't Count. You can read it, or you can listen to it as an audiobook. I'll pop a link in the show notes. Rupi mentioned how important gut health is in Ayurveda. Well, it turns out gut health is super important for all of us, regardless of our culture or genes. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be chewing the fat with Lisa and Alana McFarlane, the twins behind the gut stuff. But next time, I'll be reconnecting with an old buddy of mine, former endurance athlete Alex Hutchinson. There's also a lot
3: of research showing that exercise helps improve the match between
0: appetite and energy needs. So people who are physically active, how much they eat is linked to how much energy they're burning. Whereas people who are totally sedentary, it becomes totally decoupled. So their appetite no longer tells them to stop. Being physically active is crucial to help make sure that your appetite mechanism is giving you the right signals.
2: Thank you again to Dr. Rupi Orjla, to my producer Anushka Tate for Orion Publishing Limited, and thank you so much for listening. Catch you soon. Please do not attempt any of the strict diets we discussed in this program without consulting your own doctor first.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.